Welcome to Chapter 34 of the Kinsman Die podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first novel, Kinsman Die, one chapter at a time. And with each episode, I provide some commentary about the source materials I've referenced in the text. Today we're back with Odin. We'd last left him in his longhouse, talking to his wife, Frigg, as they argued about various things. His long absence from Gladsheim, and how that left Frigg ruling alone, something that she is heartily sick of. They also discussed the Jotun and their unprovoked attack on Halls, which Vidar is now investigating. Let's do this. Chapter 34, Odin. Odin sat heavily in Sleipnir's saddle. Perhaps slipping out of bed had not been the best decision. Whatever anger Frigg had set aside last night might burn all the brighter for waking alone in their bed. Sleipnir's hooves clopped a dull, eight-hooved rhythm against the ramp that led down alongside Yggdrasil to Ithaval. The Alvar had fashioned the ramp in that prior time when the Alvar and Svartalvar had used their skills alongside one another instead of against each other. The faint scents of the dewy grasses into which Yggdrasil sunk her roots wafted upward on the back of the ever-present, ever-cool breeze. Odin dragged his hand along the trunk, his skin alternately gliding across and then tugging on the rough bark. Life drummed through Yggdrasil's ancient trunk as strongly as through his own limbs. Unbidden, memories arose of those distant days when he and his brothers had found a crack in the rock of the hill that they eventually named Gladsheim. The crack led to a tunnel which they followed, losing track of time and location until they reached this world and its impossible sky beneath their realm. His palm crossed a too soft patch of bark, startling him back to his surroundings. He clucked his tongue and Sleipnir stopped. A soft patch? He touched the reins to Sleipnir's neck and she turned around. The ramp was wide enough for three of Thor's chariots to ride side by side. He rode upslope a few paces, his left hand dragging along Yggdrasil's trunk, searching for that soft patch. There it was. He pressed his thumb into the bark, crumbled, and broke away. He coughed at the rot stink that assaulted his nose. Rotting bark on Yggdrasil? Its outline was several handspans wide, and maybe a spear length tall, although it was difficult to measure. He drew his knife and pressed the blade into the wood. It sank in easily right to the hilt. He turned his head from the stench of decay, and it occurred to him that he had no idea how thick Yggdrasil's bark was. At least the length of his knife, but it must be thicker. He wiped the blade and sheathed it. And did the rot go deeper, all the way to the center? Was it elsewhere? He craned his neck to stare up Yggdrasil's trunk. All he could see was the bowl. Thousands of stars glinted in the blackness above, behind, and below him. By their absence, he knew where the branches to the other realms and his high seat lay, dark headlands in the sea. He withdrew one of his spindles, charged with witch thread, and called Gungnir to hand. He unscrewed the cap on Gungnir's crossguard, slotted the spindle, and replaced the cap. Sleipnir clomped her hooves impatiently on the heavy wooden planks of the road. He thumped her neck. Just a few moments more, and then we'll be off. She shook her mane and snorted. Yes, I know you're thirsty. I'll be quick. The spindle rattled as he unspooled several arm lengths of witch thread. Holding the thread pinched between thumb and forefinger, he withdrew his silver shears. He clipped the witch thread, replaced the shears, and let one end of the thread dangle free. Beginning to sing, he cast that strand up toward the rotten bark. 
His fingers danced, and the thread tangled intricately to form a rune. As he finished his song, the rune incandesced. Now he would be able to find the spot when he sat on his high seat and looked out over the realms. In finding it again, maybe he could discover something about it that would let him find other areas of decay. It seemed unlikely that he had stumbled across the only bit of rotten bark. Sleipner whinnied and stamped two of her forefeet in equine impatience. All right, all right, he said. He patted Yggdrasil's bark. Don't worry, I'll figure out what ails you. He clucked his tongue and Sleipner turned again down the path toward the misty grove from which Yggdrasil grew. She surged into a brisk trot. Odin laughed, the uppity horse, and reflexively tightened his legs. Like Sleipner's hoofbeats, his laugh was quickly swallowed by the surrounding emptiness. They were in no real hurry, but Sleipner wanted to move, so he let her. More time before the council wouldn't hurt. Not that additional time with the Nords meant more answers, or any at all. He snorted. He'd be lucky to get one question answered. And so they rode on, Sleipner's hooves beating a regular cadence against the stout planks. A swirl in the air brought the smell of fresh, clean grass. Sleipner whinnied and tossed her mane. She smelled it too, apparently. She increased her speed, and Yggdrasil's trunk on his right blurred. He crouched lower over her neck and let the rhythm of her eight pounding hooves clear his mind. Soon, Sleipner turned onto the last gentle curve as the ramp followed the course of one of Yggdrasil's massive roots. With the loom of the trunk behind them and a straight path before them, she moved swiftly into a gallop that echoed throughout the glade. And with a thump that jarred Odin's teeth, Sleipner landed in the damp, tall grasses. The scent of crushed grasses burst around him. Inhaling deeply, he grinned and drank it in. White mists flowed above the thick green grass, each looking more vibrant because of the contrast between their colors. White moths fluttered among the mists. Sleipnir began to slow, almost prancing with eagerness as they headed toward the Norn's dwelling. Odin peered ahead. Urthabruna, the wide, knee-high stone well in which the waters from Niflheim's roaring cauldron bubbled up, appeared first out of the undulating mist. Next, the gold-topped peak of the Norn's longhouse broached the mist like a ship's prow. The scratch, scratch, scrape of the Norn's chisels at work reached him. Stopping before the wet gray stones of Erd's well, Sleipnir tossed her head and stomped her eight hooves, then turned in a half-circle. Well, hold still so I can get off. She snorted, but stopped moving. He threw a leg over the saddle, slid down, and thumped into the thick grass. He looped the reins around the saddle horn and strode the few paces to Urthabruna. He sat on the cool stone, his trousers growing wet with the dampness. Beside him stood a lean, elegant ewer and a wide, low dish, both of untarnished silver. Across from him, white moths, wings opening and closing, covered the stone like snow as they drank from the drops of water dotting the well's rim. He picked up the ewer, leaned forward, and dipped it into the rippling water. The water burbled and popped, tiny echoes of Havergamur's giant roar, the ultimate source of the world's eleven mightiest rivers, and more besides. He lifted the full ewer out of the well, picked up the platter, and set it on the thick green grass. Sleipner whinnied and moved closer. He began filling the platter even as she clopped forward, nose lowered to drink noisily. Watch it, you big cow, Odin said, scratching her ears. She flicked her tail, dismissive. She raised her head, whinnied again, and pawed the grass next to the now-empty platter. Thirsty indeed, eh, girl? 
He refilled the platter, emptying the ewer. She bent to drink, and Odin stroked her neck, his left hand trailing across her gray hide. He undid the girth strap and pulled the saddle, its pad and the bag with the device in it, from her back. He retrieved a brush and ran it through her matted, sweaty hair. Finished, she raised her huge gray head and sighed hoarsely as he removed a bridle and bit. He thumped her side and stroked her nose. Off you go, but come when I call, all right? She snorted, shook her mane, and trotted off. He grinned as the immense eight-legged daughter of Loki's loins gambled through the green grasses, trailing a roiling cloud of white moths. As ever, he shuddered at the thought not only of Loki's becoming a mare, but of submitting to the builder's horse. He couldn't argue with the results, though. Loki had gotten them out of their bargain, just as his efforts had gotten them out of, and into, many similar situations. With the fading of Sleipnir's gambles, the faint scratching and scraping noises of the Norns' tools pressed back in on the glade. Grin now entirely gone, he squared his shoulders and strode toward the sound's source amid his own cloud of white moths. He shooed the one that perched on his shoulder. Before long, the low golden roof of the Norns' longhouse became visible— nestled into the corner of Yggdrasil's vast trunk and the immense root on which he'd just ridden. He strode more quickly when the house itself came into view, along with the stone table set to one side and close to Yggdrasil's bowl. Three black-clad figures stood behind the table. The ever-present scraping and scratching noises grew louder the closer he got. The sound was oddly heavy, as if some giant were piling stones on his chest. Ages ago, he'd often come with questions for these three women, these Norns, supposed priestesses of the slaughtered mother. He had never found their temple, though he had looked. Unless this was it, the stone table, the well, and the tree. His hands bunched into fists so tight it took effort to relax them. As he understood it, the Norns scraped the doom of all folk into the bits of Yggdrasil's bark that they removed and replaced. What he knew from experience, though, was that they never directly answered his questions. When they answered at all, it was in riddles that only became clear after the fact. There had only been two exceptions, the threat to Baldur and the threat Loki's children had posed. Beware the children of Loki, for they will cause even the heavens to burn. And in the golden bough shall Baldur find shelter from death, even as those remembered words arose in his mind like a black worm from the depths. He wondered if he had made the right choices all those winters ago. They'd done what the Norns had advised, but now, with Baldur's disturbing dreams and corpse-like stupor, he wondered just how sheltered his son was from death. And if the Norns were wrong in that, then perhaps they'd been wrong in other things. Which meant he'd been wrong, and that idea kindled his anger at being here at all into a blazing fury. Him, a supplicant to these three. Peckfather, is there danger? came Freckie's thought. As ever, Gary acted more impulsively and was nearer to him, having sprinted. We come, Wingfather, spoke Hugin. Moonin's mind voice echoed her brother's. No, I'm all right. All of you stay where you are. Turn back, Gary. Odin felt the wolf slow until he sat, panting to wait. Hugin and Moonin, fly to the breach. Tell me what's happening there. We go, said Hugin. Freki and Gary, stay at Ithaval. Wait for the Jarls. They'll arrive soon. Do not come to me while I speak with the Norns. He felt Gary's growl rumble through his mind, and then Freki, her mind like a whip, put Gary in his place. We obey, she said. Thank you. He resumed his slow walk forward and forced a light smile to his lips. Wisps of smoke curled up through the roof holes of the Norns' house. Their stone table stood so near to Yggdrasil's immense trunk that the Norns could walk a few paces behind them, 
Tug free a fragment of bark, return to the table to scratch and paint their runes onto the bark, and then return to the tree, pressing that borrowed bark back into the bare spot. How they always pulled off a fragment free of runes was a mystery. The tree couldn't be growing that quickly. It never moved. It never swayed. It just was. There was some subtle magic at work behind this place, and this tree, and these norns. The thought tugged at the edges of his forced smile. He stopped a spear's length from the table and clasped his wrists behind his back. The Norns wore simple dresses of earthy browns and blacks with little in the way of ornamentation. The slight gleam of a necklace here or an earring there. One tucked a loose strand of brown hair back behind an ear. Each moved spryly as if they were young. But the Norns had worked in this glade since sometime after Emir's death more than 300 winters ago. Their brushes clinked against the stoneware that held the red paint they used. He waited a dozen heartbeats for them to acknowledge him. Could these be the same three women as all that time ago? He was still here, thanks to Yggdrasil's fruit, so why not them? He waited another dozen heartbeats. They still didn't look up. By degrees, his smile grew colder. If they were different women, the older ones must have instructed the newer ones in how to best infuriate him. So he spoke the usual formal greeting. Three maidens, mighty in wisdom, I greet you and beg pardon for my interruption. As ever, I come seeking knowledge. Immediately, three very different voices spoke all at once. The first was high and piping like a child. The second, mellow and strong, was the voice of a mother who had brought life into the world. The third's voice sounded like tree limbs creaking in a winter gale. She sounded like one who'd witnessed many lives passing back into the Genungagap. Not unlike him, in a way. And we greet you, father of the slain. Valfather, in the old language. Why do you greet me so? Father of the slain? Scratch, scrape, scratch. They still hadn't looked up at him. The old-sounding one spoke. You call yourself All-Father. Does that not mean Father of All? And if All, does that not also mean the Father of those slain? He waited for more, forcing the smile back onto his face despite the muscle that clenched in his jaw. That's not what his title meant, which they must know if they knew anything at all. But why greet me so when you must know why I came? Heartbeats passed. When no answer came, he pressed forward. I come with questions, as always, wise Norns. May I ask them? He waited. His cheeks began to ache from holding the smile. When no answer came, he asked, First... I ask the meaning of a dream, or insight into it, at least. It is a dream of the impossible, the death of my son Balder. Do you know of this dream? We do, the Norn said. Does it mean what it seems to, that my son will die, or does it hint at something else? May it not do both? But Balder cannot die, for and I prevented it, as you warned, as you advised, so long ago. Just a few nights ago, he was struck a blow that would have killed nine Asir, that might even have killed me. But he lives. And yet all things die, Valfather. Not if he could help it. So you're saying he will die, then? That runs counter to what you said all those winters past. Has the doom you've seen changed? No response, but the scraping of their chisels. His hands clenched into fists, one hand locked around his other wrist. Have you now scratched his death rune? Tools clinked dully against the stone as the Norns set them down. In that moment, the glade's quiet became oppressive. Sweat beaded on his lip. It dripped cold down the small of his back. The Norns stared at him. Three women, 
long brown hair braided, all wearing identical simple clothing and identical expressionless faces, despite one being old, one middle-aged, and one young. I ask a second time, wise Norns, have you scratched the death rune for my son Balder? Their faces were more still than the lake east of Gladsheim. They seemed to reflect his own forced smile and his rage, contained like a bear in a deep pit. His doom hasn't changed, Valfather. No more will we say. To silence we would return. He spoke through a clenched jaw. You will not say? It is not so marked that you learn the dream's true meaning from us. Marked? Here, upon the bark, said the old one, tapping the piece before her, even as all three spoke. The three-toned chime of their voices was more difficult to understand now. It was as if he'd been struck on the head and everything around him was a little off. A ripple through one's reflection in that lake. I don't care what's etched where. A third time I ask it. I demand it that you tell me what Baldur's dream means. And a third time we say no. The Norns picked up their tools and went back to work. Odin blew out a long, slow breath. He unclenched his hands and rubbed his palms, using the few moments to steady himself. Like a shield, his smile went back up. Spear-like, his words struck out. Then tell me why the Jotun attacked Halls. Three times I ask it. The old-sounding Norn, the one on the right, looked up. In Winter's voice, mocking the unpreparedness of men, she said, Is it not obvious, Valfather? The Jotun hate the Asir. Yes, but why did they attack now? especially with this peace in place. The Middle Norn spoke with a mother's mellow voice. Peace between Asir and Jotun is merely the time between conflict. She looked down, dipped her brush in the red paint, and with quick, sure strokes, painted runes upon the bark her sister had placed before her. So war comes again? The sound of their work answered him. Fists clenched, he asked his last question. On my ride down here, I found a patch of rotten bark. What caused it? The first Norn put down her chisel and looked up at him. Her high, piping voice clashed with her grave expression. As a child, did you learn more from doing or more from being told? A smile wavered across the unshadowed lower half of her face, then hid itself as she looked back down and resumed her work. She was dismissing him. Him. So that was it? Again, they refused to answer his questions? Quicker than an ill-made sword, his temper snapped. His sight dimmed at the edges, and he surged forward, riding the wave of his anger like a warship grounding against the shore. His hands came up almost by themselves, as if he meant to slam them down on the table, or maybe reach across it to grab one of these hens by her neck and wring an answer, a genuine answer, from her clucking throat. All three Norns looked up at him then, hands raising, fingers dancing as if along a witch thread. A wind whipped up around them, visible only in the flapping of their dresses, caught him around the waist and flung him away but not before he heard one of them say, nor is it time for that. Well, folks, that was chapter 34 of Kinsman Die. I hope you enjoyed it. We were with Odin as he descended to Ithaval, had a conversation with the Norns, and then got slapped when he got uppity. There's a ton of stuff going on in this chapter, so let's get started. First up is Yggdrasil. This is the world tree, as envisioned by the Norse. I chose to portray it as a literal tree that exists basically in another dimension. From Odin's perspective, he rides down alongside it to Ithaval, which is where I place the Norns, their house, and their table. The first portion of the word is eager, Y-G-G-R, which means something like terrible. That is also one of Odin's names. It's what the Jotun, including Loki, call Odin throughout my books. The second element, Drasil, means horse. 
That could mean a literal horse like Sleipnir, or it could be a kenning and refer to the tree on which Odin sacrificed himself to himself. Many animals live upon Yggdrasil. We'll meet some of them throughout my series. There are various contradictory accounts of how many roots Yggdrasil has and where they go, and how many realms Yggdrasil connects to. There are also different accounts of how many realms there actually are. I simplified all of it a bit, and I won't go into too much detail now, because spoilers. Recall in the beginning part of the chapter, Odin discovers a place of rotten bark, which he then marks, and this is important, and a direct reference to some stuff in the myths. More spoilers there. To descend along Yggdrasil in my universe means riding on a ramp that was placed there by the Alvar and the Svart Alvar. How it was placed and built relates to the different approaches each of those peoples have to magic, and more on that later. Next up is Ithaval. In the Volaspa, one of the poems in the Poetic Edda, Ithaval is cited as the meeting place of the gods. I chose to place it at the base of Yggdrasil. In an upcoming chapter, we will be in Ithaval very shortly. Next up are the Norns. Here is the introduction to the Norns from the Volaspa, verse 19. And first is the Larrington translation. An ash I know that stands, Yggdrasil is called, a tall tree drenched with shining loam. From there come the dews which fall in the valley, green it stands always over Earther's well. Loam is a type of fertile soil, and you can see from that verse why I depicted everything as misty and wet and very green. Also, the roots of Yggdrasil reach down into the cold, misty realm of Niflheim, so I wanted that influence there as well. Urther's well in Old Norse is Urthebruna. In the myths, there are several wells of various importance. The well next to which Odin sat in this chapter is Urther's well. More on that in an upcoming chapter. And another well is Mimir's well. We'll also encounter that one in a future chapter. And more generally, in literature as a whole, in myths, folktales, etc., water, whether it's lakes, rivers, seas, wells, are usually symbolic of the unconscious mind, of the spirit. Diving into them can mean a journey into that realm. There are three Norns, and this is Volaspa, verses 20 and 21, again the Larrington translation. From there come girls, knowing a great deal, three from the lake standing under the tree, Erther, one is called, Verdandi, another. They carved on a wooden slip, schooled the third. They laid down laws, they chose lives for the sons of men, the fates of men. And in the Bellows translation, which I won't read in its entirety, it starts out with three maidens mighty in wisdom. And you notice that's exactly how Odin first addresses the Norns. I thought it was just kind of a cool line. The names of the three Norns we just heard, but they are schooled, which means what ought to happen, verdandi, which means becoming or happening, and Erther, which means what has happened. According to Zemek, the names of the Norns are all different tenses of the verb to be. This is one of those topics that probably needs its own dedicated section of the podcast itself, what is actually meant by the names of these Norns and how it plays out throughout myth and the worldview of the Norse in general. So I will leave that discussion for another day. Notice that in the verse in Volaspa, it says that they carved on wood. In the Bellows translation, it is on wood they scored, which is why I have them using chisels to cut something into the bark of Yggdrasil, which they remove and then replace. At this point in the story, Odin's not entirely sure what they're carving into those bits of bark besides uh, runes that 
delineate the doom of all men. We also hear a bit of the prophecy that the Norns spoke to Odin many winters past. Those lines come directly from myth, but the phrase, or at least reference myth, but the phrase, the Golden Bough, is a direct reference to the book by Sir James Fraser, The Golden Bough. A passage in that book unlocked a plot puzzle for me, and saying more would be spoilers. The Norns name Odin Valfather, father of the slain. That's the first time in the book he's called by that name, and obviously I did that for reasons. The Slaughtered Mother. This is partly my invention. The Slaughtered Mother is a reference to the divine cow, Autumbla. She is part of the Norse myth, the creation myth that involves Ymir, who fed from her milk. Autumbla licked the first man, Buri, from the primordial ice and salt. Buri is the grandfather of Odin, Vili, and Ve, and some of this was incorporated as backstory into my books. And I've already mentioned Odin's brothers a few times, both in the book itself and then in some of these uh, commentary sections. There are also multiple Loki allusions in the chapter. Odin is thinking about Loki, his dalliance with the builder's horse, Svadalfari, and the product of that union with Sleipnir, who I've talked about in previous episodes. But also, Odin's thinking about how much trouble Loki has caused, and how much trouble Loki has gotten them out of. Odin's familiars also have a role in this chapter, and in the subsequent ones, obviously. In this one, I wanted to kind of highlight how, in the myths, Odin sends his ravens out flying every morning to gather information for him, and then every evening they return and tell him what they saw and heard. So Odin sending the ravens to the breach was a reference to that. Next week, we're back with Vidar Odinson for a bit of the old rough and tumble. But before then, if you have the time and the inclination, please take a few moments to rate or review the podcast that provides valuable feedback for me and helps boost the show's visibility as to sharing it. And if you're so inclined, please shoot me an email at mattbishopwrites at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, I'm going to read from the Havamal, the sayings of the high one. And you'll be glad to know that Odin has finally stopped lecturing us on how to behave during feasts. First up is the Bellows translation, verse 34. Crooked and far is the road to a foe, though his house on the highway be. But wide and straight is the way to a friend, though far away he fare. Larrington, verse 34. It's a great detour to a bad friend's house, even though he lives on the route. But to a good friend's house, the ways lie straight, even though he lives far off. Thanks for listening.